The Biden administration is preparing by far the biggest package of military aid yet for Ukraine. With hardly any debate, Congress is ready to approve sending $20 billion of weapons to Ukraine on top of $13 billion in additional financial support for the government, a point driven home by Nancy Pelosi's surprise trip to Kiev. We'll also discuss the continuing rollback of pandemic relief programs, the fight to defend abortion rights, demands for student loan debt relief, and more. This episode was recorded Monday, May 2nd, 2022, late afternoon prior to the news that the Supreme Court majority had voted to overturn Roe v. Wade and extinguish women's fundamental right to control their own body. Starting last night and throughout today and in the coming days, there will be mass protests in the streets throughout the United States. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's May 3rd, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel here with Walter Smolarek and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ibarum is out today. Brian, where do you want to start? Well, of course, we have to talk about Ukraine. There is a growing clamor that the U.S. has to get ready for nuclear war. That's right. The Wall Street Journal The U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war, dated Thursday, April 28th, page A17. Top of the page, full big banner headline, Walter. And also, we have congressional tourism to Ukraine picking up. Nancy Pelosi off to Kiev to meet with Zelensky. It's now like a pilgrimage, Walter, like all of these politicians from both sides of the aisle, from the Republicans and the Democrats, they're moving to Kiev. They want to have their picture taken with Zelensky. Nancy Pelosi looked like she was going to a party. She was like very happy. She was smiling. We have an audio clip of one of her many happy speeches that she gave while she was in Ukraine. Anyway, let's listen to that. And then, Walter, I want to go to you to talk about the shifting sort of presentation within the American establishment about this war. We believe that we are visiting you uh, to say thank you uh, for your fight for freedom, that we are on a frontier of freedom, and that your fight is a fight for everyone. And so our commitment is to be there for you until the fight is done. Your fight for freedom. No, this could have been a negotiated agreement many months ago Russia's goal was not to just, quote, invade Ukraine. Russia's goal was to make sure that Ukraine wouldn't be a staging ground for NATO's advanced nuclear missiles that would be placed on its border 
if Ukraine, in fact, became part of NATO. And the U.S. said over and over again, as we have said over and over again, that Russia's demands were a non-starter. Now, obviously, the U.S. torpedoed negotiations. They didn't want the negotiations. I think once Putin had planted his feet and said, these are red lines, you have to give us these guarantees or else, and he amassed troops along the border, I think the U.S. felt like, good, now now he's planted his feet. There are only two options. He either capitulates to our pressure, our refusal to negotiate, in which case he looks like a humbled leader and probably it would be the end of him politically at home. Or he takes some kind of military action, in which case we can paint Russia as the aggressor and do all the things that the U.S. is now doing. So now it's a struggle, Walter, fighting for Ukrainian freedom. I mean, since when? Right. And, and Nancy Pelosi also said, until your fight for freedom is done, right? I mean, I think there's there's remarkably consistent messaging coming from all these U.S. politicians who, like you're saying, go on these like tourist trips to Kiev to get their picture taken, look like, you know, heroes going into the war zone. They're saying, keep the war going. Don't end the war. The fact that they proposed such an enormous amount of money, $20 billion. And, you know, before this, it was like $800 million at a time, you know, maybe a couple billion dollars they would announce. This is like a qualitative leap in the amount of money, the amount of funding, the the quantity of weapons that the United States is prepared to supply to Ukraine. And I think the purpose behind that, the political message embedded in it, is not just that we'll give you $20 billion. It's that we will give you an unlimited amount of money, an unlimited amount of funding. And as long as you can keep your army functioning, as long as you can keep the war going, we will underwrite all of it. We'll finance all of it. I want to play that again. I mean, I really want people to listen to exactly what she's saying. She makes it so clear. She says, your fight is for everyone. She's essentially saying out loud, you are our pawns. This is a proxy war. Let's listen to it again. We believe that we are visiting you uh, to say thank you uh, for your fight for freedom, that we are on a frontier of freedom and that your fight is a fight for everyone. And so our commitment is to be there for you until the fight is done. Why else would you thank someone for being at war? Like our citizens don't have to fight and bleed. Why, I mean, why else would you thank someone for being at war? I mean, she's just saying this out loud. Please keep bleeding. And think of the logic, you know, when I was a kid, they, this seems ludicrous now, but, you know, we were told as young kids, you know, getting ready to be drafted into the into the U.S. Army, if we don't fight the Vietnamese communists in Vietnam, we're going to be fighting them in California. I mean, this was actually what people were told, that the U.S. had to fight there to prevent the Vietnamese and communism from coming to the United States. So fighting for our freedom, Nancy, in Ukraine, what, is Nancy suggesting that this is just step number one, that Russia invaded Ukraine as part of its global march to the West? finally conquering continental Europe and then on perhaps to Long Island. I mean, that's the logic of this, Walter. I mean, it's so bizarre. It's so absurd. And yet the media is without challenge, without, you know, holding this up to ridicule, just rebroadcasting this kind of nonsense. And that's really the only way something this absurd can sink in. I mean, if the entire establishment media is repeating it nonstop, I mean, that's really the only way that the elite can get 
large numbers of people to buy something as you know logically ridiculous as this. And they've been at it for a long time. They've been preparing public opinion for this for a very long time, not just since the troop buildup began along the border between Russia and Ukraine, but for years prior to that. I mean, the Russia Gate phenomenon was essentially preparing the section of the population that in many cases is most skeptical to U.S. war making abroad to be completely supportive of any type of military action as long as Russia is involved in one way or another. And then, you know, you have the sort of qualitative leap into a war frenzy, a war hysteria that we've seen in the last few months, where it's an absolute article of faith, no matter where you stand in the sort of allowed spectrum of political thought in the United States, that you must express your fealty to the Ukrainian cause. And mentioning any relevant historical context, like the constant expansion of NATO eastwards, like the aggressive U.S. actions in the areas surrounding Russia and against traditional Russian allies. I mean, all of this historical context that would make it clear what an absurdity the pro-war presentation is, that's considered to be heresy. You're, you're not allowed to say that on TV. You're not allowed to say that on the radio. You're not allowed to say that certainly in Congress. And doing so would be the end of your political career. And so they have to really go into full gear and use all of their powers, all of their weapons, all their tools to shape public opinion to get people to swallow this lie. You know, I just want to have our audience think about this one thing. Let's say you're mortified by all the human suffering, the suffering of Ukrainians, the death and the destruction, the killing on the other side, the killing of Russian soldiers, young people from Russia. You're really mortified you're, let's say you're a member of Congress and you're mortified about all of this and you get to go on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News and you said, you know, the suffering of the Ukrainian people, the suffering in Ukraine, the killing on, of soldiers and civilians on both sides, it's so terrible. We must get right back to the negotiating table and we need to meet Russia halfway. We need to have an end to this war, which can happen. And we, the way to do it is to sit down and say to Russia, look, we guarantee you that we won't put advanced nuclear and conventional missiles, U.S. conventional or nuclear missiles or NATO conventional or nuclear missiles. We guarantee you, Russia, we're not going to put those on your border. And in exchange, there will be a ceasefire. That's the road to peace. That's the path to peace. If anybody in Congress went on TV, Walter, and said those words, about how to get to a peace deal, to end the war right now, not to keep fighting until the Ukrainians finally win, but to end the war right now. Those statements and those kind of comments will also be treated as Russian propaganda. Russian propaganda and just something that would be so beyond the pale that nobody could possibly donate to your campaign. Nobody could possibly volunteer for you. No other politicians could co-sponsor legislation. I mean, the all of the tools that they have to exclude you from essentially anywhere that you can pursue a political career, they would do that. They would do that. And that's because, as the old saying goes in U.S. ruling class politics, politics stops at the water's edge, right? That the different factions, the different elite factions represented in Congress or the White House can have a vigorous debate about domestic policy issues. But when it comes to the core priorities of U.S. imperialism abroad, and certainly targeting Russia for regime change, because that's what this has become, right? It's not about defending Ukraine. It's about creating such a military quagmire for Russia that the Russian government is actually destabilized and falls. 
that is a goal of such central importance to U.S. imperialism that it's actually impossible for anybody to go against that unless, unless you have an organization, a movement behind you saying exactly those same things. But if you're just out there on your own as a politician or as a pundit, yeah, I mean, you'll get eaten alive if you do those things because it violates that cardinal rule of U.S. politics that politics stops at the water's edge. Yeah, and we now know people, voices from the anti-war movement or independent media, alternative media, are being censored. They're being taken down. They're losing their ability to collect PayPal donations. That happened to Consortium News just in the past week. If you And their whole account was seized. And their whole account was seized. Yeah, they I think $10,000 or something like that. And we've talked to Lee Camp about the and Ben Norton about the witch hunt that's going on against alternative media and the new YouTube warnings to people who are producing video content. It's something like if you minimize Ukrainian suffering or let's see, what was the other one? If you blame the victim, meaning if you said that the Zelensky government, by failing to come to an agreement with the people in the east, in the eastern part of Ukraine, living up to the Minsk Accord, if you blame the Ukrainian government for not doing that or for not negotiating in good faith, if you just say there's culpability and responsibility on all sides, including on Ukraine, the argument can be made now that you will be censored because you are minimizing Ukrainian suffering or you are in some way blaming the victim. So the only way you can avoid the censor, apparently, you know, perhaps, is to say, look, everything that's happening that's wrong here is happening because of Russia. All responsibility is Russian responsibility. You have to kowtow to the U.S. line. Yeah. And so, you know, at once upon a time in old Europe, for instance, people were very used to writing for the censor, right? You had to say and certain things and make sure not to say other things. You had to watch what you said so that you wouldn't actually be taken down, be censored, be put in jail or be decommissioned. Same thing happened in the 1950s and late 1940s here with the witch hunt. You know, that's the whole thing about a witch hunt is it's illegal or you will be shut down in some way if you express an independent point of view that says that the United States government, the military industrial complex, the Pentagon and NATO have a responsibility here. And I think when we talk about sending $33 billion more, which is what Biden is talking about, those are the headlines, the 13 billion plus 20 billion, 33 billion. Well, where is that money really going? It's not going to Ukraine. It's going to American weapons manufacturers. That money circles through like destination Ukraine. No, it's just like the weapon sells to the state of Israel. I mean, they go really back to the military industrial complex. And that's the reality. The military industrial complex is thrilled right now because this war means that weapons can be replenished. There's a consensus once again within Congress. Even the so-called liberal Democrats are either being mute or joining the the pro-war chorus. That's the state of things. And Walter, you were mentioning about how through repetition in the media, people start to believe it because it's said endlessly. And I think you can easily see that. When you talk to people who are basically getting their news from mainstream media, they're just regurgitating the things that they're hearing with complete repetitiveness. And, you know, it reminds me, Joseph Goebbels, 
the Nazi propagandists, he said famously, or at least it's always said that he said, if you tell a big lie enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic, and or military consequences of the lie. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent. For the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie, and thus by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. Now, Walter, I heard this since I was in sixth grade. This was always attributed to evil Nazi propaganda. But, you know, when you read it, when you hear that quote, when you pay attention to the quote, you can't but come to the conclusion that a lot of that is exactly what people in the United States are experiencing right now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that really stood out to me about that quote was the part about shielding people from the political, social, economic fallout of the war. And I think that's why, you know, it's so important for the Pentagon that this is a proxy war, that U.S. soldiers are not necessarily the ones doing the bleeding and the dying, although certainly this war could spiral completely out of control. Very easily that could happen. This war could spiral out of control and and U.S. soldiers would very much be involved in the killing and the dying. But they're in a very advantageous position here because they can get Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian civilians and Russian soldiers to do all of the dying in this war. And all they have to do is sign the checks. They just have to sign the checks, like you said, to their own military industrial complex entities, corporations, and they get the political benefit of the war, the geopolitical benefit of it. The inflation crisis, I think, is a very real factor here. You know, the inflation crisis was not caused by the war, although certainly Joe Biden is going to and all the Democrats are going to make the case endlessly that, you know, the only reason that there's economic suffering because of the inflation crisis is is because Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine. But nonetheless, I mean, certainly this is having a profound economic impact on the entire world, primarily on poorer countries, not on the United States, places where the price of food, you know, for instance, the price of a loaf of bread in Zimbabwe has doubled since the war began. But also in the United States, I mean, the price of fuel is going up, the price of other essential goods are going up. And so, you know, I think that this is something that's going to have a profoundly destabilizing effect on the world for a long time to come. And working people here in the United States are going to suffer the consequences of it, both in that negative sense and, and also in you know just the utter waste of all this money that's going towards death and destruction, towards killing people in other countries. There's another really important element of the Ukraine war story that I want to go over. Once again, we've been saying on this show, on the socialist program for several weeks now, that the logic of this particular war is going towards escalation. And escalation means when the main adversaries are Russia and really the NATO countries who are supporting Ukraine and the United States in particular, all of them are nuclear powers. You know, not Ukraine, but Russia is a nuclear power. The United States is a nuclear power. Britain is a nuclear power. France. You know, if the U.S. is determined to win the war, which is the rhetoric of Nancy Pelosi and Biden and, you know, the Republicans and Democrats alike, to win the war, that means the war must go forward. And if Russia is determined not to lose the war, the logic is at one point or another, one of the parties will start to escalate and escalation will lead directly in the direction 
of a nuclear confrontation. So here's the Wall Street Journal, April 27, 2022. The U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war. And then the article goes on and says these words. The reality is that unless the U.S. prepares to win a nuclear war, it risks losing one. Then the article goes on. If Russia's military situation appears dire, Mr. Putin has a dual incentive to use nuclear weapons. This is consistent with publicly stated Russian military doctrine. A nuclear attack would present Ukraine with the same choice Japan faced in 1945. Surrender or be annihilated. Ukraine may not break. The haunting images from Bukha, Irpin, and elsewhere demonstrate Russia's true intention. A Russian victory would lead to mass killings, deportations, rape, and other atrocities. The Ukrainian choice won't be between death and survival, but rather armed resistance and unarmed extermination. Nuclear use would require NATO to respond. Anyway, this writer, featured in the Wall Street Journal, is making the argument that the U.S. must show that it's prepared to win a nuclear war. Now, isn't the United States the only country that's ever detonated nuclear weapons? What's important here is that the the equilibrium that was constructed when the Soviet Union also achieved nuclear weapons after the dropping of the atomic bomb by the United States in Nagasaki and Hiroshima in August 1945, when that parity or equality, a certain symmetry was created where the U.S. had enough nuclear weapons and Russia or the Soviet Union had enough nuclear weapons, in the event of a nuclear exchange, both sides would be destroyed. There'd be mad, mutually assured destruction. And that was supposed to be and was a deterrent to war meaning you couldn't win a nuclear war. Only the extremists, like from the Hudson Institute and some other holdovers were within the U.S. establishment were still making the argument, yeah, we can have a nuclear war and we can win it. As the Hudson Institute said, maybe we'll lose 100 million or 200 million people, but we'll win, we'll win. And we can defeat the enemy. We can defeat the communists in the Soviet Union. Like that was the the logic that was kind of prevalent in the 1940s started to diminish in the 1950s. And as the Soviet Union achieved nuclear parity, that's when you started to get these arms control agreements. Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, SALT One, replaced then by SALT Two, then the START treaties, then the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaties. Then there was the Intermediate Nuclear Range Treaties, meaning neither side could put short-range or medium-range missiles on the border or close to the other side with missiles that had a flight time of five or six minutes to their targets. So that entire architecture of arms control agreements between the major nuclear powers was constructed on the basis of mutually assured destruction. But here the Wall Street Journal says, the U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war. What does that mean? It means it's not mutually assured destruction. It means, in fact, we can win a nuclear war. And again, this comes just a couple years after the new military doctrine has been established, making major power conflict, not the war on terror, the dominant 
priority for the Pentagon. And again, a new doctrine that was, you know, accepted without any argument in Congress. There was no debate about this. Like, yeah, the U.S. should prepare for war with Russia and China, major power conflict. And now it's sort of quickly evolving to not only can we have a major power conflict, we can win a nuclear war. Again, this is going to start to roll out. The war makers hope to be able to get people to acclimate to the idea that nuclear war is acceptable, maybe prudent, and certainly a way to defeat the Russians who are, quote, taking away our freedom, according to Nancy Pelosi. The same opinion piece goes on to say, quote, this isn't to say the U.S. should use nuclear weapons. Again, a nuclear response would make global nuclear war more likely. And then they give an example of what you should be doing. The U.S. Navy's surface ships, for example, could be re-equipped with nuclear weapons, as they were during the Cold War. So in one breath, in one paragraph, actually, in this article, they're saying, no, no, we shouldn't start a nuclear war. We shouldn't use nuclear weapons, but we should start escalating and just have nuclear weapons on board these ships. And the reason the line was put in that, no, we shouldn't have a nuclear war, that would be bad, is because they don't want to be accused of being absolutely for a nuclear war. But again, you don't write an article entitled, the U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war. You don't do that. And then at the same time say, but of course we don't want a nuclear war. Obviously what they're doing is preparing the population to begin to accept as parts of the population, a significant part of the population accepted in the 1950s that nuclear war was coming. I mean, there was a reason all of us of a certain age, you know, we had nuclear war test drills From the time I was in second grade in school, we got under our desks and we put our hands over our eyes, you know, to block the the blinding flash from the nuclear bomb that we I mean, this is how the American people and all children were indoctrinated in that time period. And again, uh, the idea that nuclear war is viable, tenable, possible or likely is being reintroduced into the American public, and it's being done so for a reason. Under the Obama administration, the U.S. introduced the fourth generation of nuclear weapons, which are low-yield, usable tactical nuclear weapons in battlefield situations. They spend a trillion dollars to upgrade. Now, I want to encourage all of our listeners to join us for a really special examination of this issue on Wednesday because we're going to be talking with someone who is perhaps the foremost expert from progressive politics on nuclear weapons. And I'm talking about, of course, Greg Mello from the Los Alamos study group in New Mexico. And he's going to be joining us. We're going to have a whole one hour discussion with Greg Mello about what's going on with the reintroduction of the idea of nuclear war and how the U.S. is actually preparing to carry out nuclear war and why this situation in Ukraine, the logic of it is towards escalation. And again, everyone knows, and I think, Walter, you've talked about before, as we did with Daniel Ellsberg in his book, The Doomsday Machine, about what a nuclear war would look like. The Pentagon's own estimates are that 400 to 500 million people would die in a nuclear exchange, but then hundreds of millions more would die because 
of what's called nuclear winter. Yeah, let me let me just explain what nuclear winter means because this really shows why there there is no such thing as winning a nuclear war. I mean, what this article is proposing is genocidal, right? It's like let's wipe out all the major cities of the enemy country and then we'll reign supreme. So that's pretty evil on its own, but it would actually lead to the end of all human life on earth because of this phenomena known as a nuclear winter. So a combination of all of the dust kicked up by the impact of the nuclear missiles that would hit all over the world, plus all of the soot and dust and debris released into the atmosphere by the firestorms that those nuclear missiles would create. So these firestorms, I mean, think about the big fires out in the U.S. West, for instance, that happens every summer. Imagine those, but much, much bigger and much, much faster moving, sweeping through all of the most populated parts of the planet. So all of the dust created by that would enter the Earth's atmosphere and would block out the sun. The sun would not shine on planet Earth for, you know, maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years, but certainly long enough for all crops on the planet to fail. And for humanity, if you didn't die in the blast and if you didn't die from the radiation poisoning, to die of starvation in the nuclear winter. Like, that is the future that these people are actually proposing. Just this past weekend, I had a conversation with a tenant leader in a housing struggle. And she was saying, I've examined the building we're living in that the city is trying to tear down and it's brick and mortar. It'll be safer for a nuclear shelter than these new luxury buildings that are going up. I mean, insane that this is something that's on her mind. Similarly, I had another conversation in the last week who is, you know, a friend who's not regularly thinking about or studying international issues. But again, she was talking about this and she was terrified of the idea of nuclear war talking about, like, should she leave D.C.? Will this be the first place hit? This is indicative to me of what's happening, that this is clearly constantly in the press. And the way that it's in the press is that Putin is a madman, which, as you said, Brian, is something that's been talked about now for years and amped up during the Russiagate scandals. And so who knows? How can we know? He's, you know, he's liable to do anything. Yeah, so the nuclear aggressor here would be Russia. Go ahead, Walter. This type of just absolute madness goes back to the very beginning of the U.S. nuclear program. You know, when they were getting ready to test the first atomic bomb, there were some scientists who thought that, because this is the first time a nuclear explosion had ever happened on Earth before, there were some scientists who thought that that would ignite the atmosphere. That once a nuclear explosion happens, once an atom is split, that essentially all of the oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere would turn into fire across the entire planet, right? Like when they were going, when they were giving the final approval to test this bomb, there was a real possibility that they would turn all of the air on Earth into fire and they tested it anyway. They went ahead with it. So it's this kind of genocidal madness that's at the very core of the U.S. nuclear program. Yeah, exactly. That's what sounds like madness to me. All right, so again, Greg Mello foremost expert on nuclear weapons, the history of nuclear weapons, the politics of nuclear weapons. That's going to be this Thursday segment called The Real Story on the Socialist Program. It will be broadcast at 7 p.m. Wednesday evening as a YouTube video on Breakthrough News, our partner for The Real Story episode. You all remember that Samantha Power used to be the U.S. representative to the United Nations, right? Samantha, I've got the power, power, Mm -hmm. 
right? And she was the big hawk during the Obama administration. She and there were some other people in the Obama administration who were super hawks, like Samantha Power. Let's see, what are their names? Uh, Victoria Newland, mm -hmm. Anthony Blinken, mm -hmm. Kurt Campbell, uh, Jake Sullivan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are the people who are like... It's funny, they're all back. These privileged, rich kids who worm their way into the bureaucracy in the Democratic Party, not so-called right-wing, you know, Trump-like figures. But these people are completely committed to war fighting on a global scale. They are the hardliners. They were the ones who brought us along with some Republican hardliners, but certainly they were in the forefront who brought us the Maidan coup d'etat that changed everything and, and led to Ukraine no longer being a neutral country, balancing between East and West. So anyway, Samantha Power, I guess, you know, right now she's the head of USAID. Now that sounds good, like the U.S. Agency for International Development. Yeah, they're aiding people, right? USAID, for anyone who has paid any attention to the function of USAID is that USAID is essentially a front group for the Central Intelligence Agency. Which is, of course, evidenced by the fact that Samantha Power is now running it just to connect the dots there. Yes. And so, Samantha, I've got the power, power on Face the Nation this weekend, you know, very revealing in terms of how she's talking about the Ukraine war and the Ukraine crisis. Again, she's not unhappy. No, and I'll play the clip here. She's on the show to talk about and promote all the money that the U.S. is spending on weapons for Ukraine. But I don't know if she realizes that she's also revealing just how entrenched USAID is and has been in Ukraine, which really shows the level to which the U.S. has been involved for a much longer period here. Not to mention, of course, the much bigger amount of money being spent on USAID and, you know, on war making instead of, I don't know, uh, anything else like this $33 billion, by the way, is about the amount of money you would need by some estimates to replace all lead pipes in all municipalities nationwide. You could do that instead of sending this round of howitzer cannons. And the uninsured who were getting treated for COVID hospitals, there was that other article, hospitals scrambling because the uninsured are no longer covered with emergency aid. So here's this clip on Face the Nation that was from this past weekend. Are you saying your USAID staff are already inside and working to do this? What we do, Margaret, uh, in circumstances like this especially, is we work through our implementing partners. So uh, we have uh, folks who are, in a sense, indirectly on the ground but who are receiving uh, U.S. taxpayer resources in order to provide everything from flak jackets and helmets, again, to those safe houses, uh, or the kind of training uh, that journalists maybe had not had before about uh, how to work in war zones or, or work to gather evidence of war crimes or other atrocities. So we're sort of turning our previous programming, uh, which was very extensive all across Ukraine, into programming that is suited for this moment through our Ukrainian partners who are working inside Ukraine. So remember during the Maidan coup d'etat, Victoria Nuland made the argument that the U.S. had already spent $5 billion over the last 24 years in Ukraine to, quote, promote democracy, which means to organize color revolutions, to move Ukraine out of neutrality, using the cover of aid and assistance and democracy promotion intervening directly into Ukraine's politics. Well, here she calls the USAID is now partnering 
with people who are, did she say indirectly on the ground? Like, what does it mean to be indirectly on the ground? You're either on the ground or you're not on the ground. (laughs) What does indirectly on the ground mean, Nicole? It's very hard to know. I mean, I think what's clear is that they have been and are sending money to whatever operatives. And personnel who are indirectly on the ground, And personnel who are indirectly on the ground to do their bidding. She talked about training journalists on how to operate in a war zone. You might, without context, think, oh, yeah, that must mean, hey, make sure to wear a helmet. Maybe they teach them, like, how to evade gunfire. But when you look back at what's happened in past color revolutions, there have been actual training of journalists to actually do the U.S.'s bidding. Yeah, USAID, NED, National Endowment for Democracy, and several other so-called democracy-promoting agencies, all of which are basically a front for or very similar to CIA covert operations, they're always in these areas. They're training journalists. They call it training. They're training activists and organizers. Very big part of what happened in Yugoslavia in the run-up of the NATO war against Yugoslavia, there was all of these, this Western U.S., mainly agency money, training organizers to be against the Milosevic government. And part of journalism means to make up stories. You know, propaganda is making up stories that basically fortify and provide a public rationale for your core needs, your core military needs. The U.S. right now needs escalation. They want to, quote, win. They want to defeat the Russians. They need to be able to keep all of those stories going. So, yeah, you know, we played that clip from John Stockwell that came from the movie Hearts and Minds. John Stockwell was the author of the book In Search of Enemies. He was the CIA station director in uh, Luanda, Angola during the post-Portuguese colonial period when the MPLA, the Movement for the Popular Liberation of Angola, supported by Cuba, supported by other liberation movements and freedom fighters in South Africa, were battling against CIA-backed counter-revolutionaries in Angola, and most importantly, against the South African apartheid military regime, which up until that point seemed so big it seemed almost invincible until it was defeated in that time period. John Stockwell said a big part of what the CIA did was to manage the media. And he says in this clip, we had, you know, at least 400 journalists who are basically either on the CIA payroll or being manipulated by the CIA. And he said this was an important part, a key important part of their work. So when Samantha Power talks about working with partners in Ukraine to provide training for journalists, et cetera, et cetera. That means they're planting an entire propaganda apparatus as would be expected during wartime. Let's play that clip. Again, this is John Stockwell. He was the station chief in Luanda, Angola, and managing the CIA war in Angola. There are other functions, however, some of them more legitimate than others. One is to run secret wars. Another thing is to disseminate propaganda to influence people's minds. And this is a major function of the CIA. And uh, unfortunately, of course, it overlaps into the gathering of information. You, you have contact with a journalist, you will give him true stories, you'll get information from him, you'll also give him false stories. You also work on their human vulnerabilities to recruit them in a classic sense, to make them your agent so that you can control what they do so you don't have to set them up sort of, you know, 
by, by putting one over on them. So you can say, here, plant this one next Tuesday. Can you do this with responsible reporters? Yes, the church committee brought it out in 1975, and then Woodward and Bernstein put an article in Rolling Stone a couple of years later. Uh, 400 journalists cooperating with the CIA, uh, including some of the biggest names in the business, to consciously introduce the stories into the press. Well, give me a concrete example of how you use the press this way. Well, for example, in my, my war, the Angola War that I helped to manage, uh, one third of my staff was propaganda. Uh, I had propagandists all over the world, principally in London, Kinshasa, and Zambia. We, were, we would take stories which we would write and put them in the Zambia Times and then pull them out and send them to a, a journalist on our payroll in Europe but his cover story, you see, would be that he, would, he had gotten them from his stringer in Lusaka, who had gotten them from the Zambia Times. But after that point, the journalists, uh, Reuters and AFP, uh, the management was not witting of it. Now, our contact man in Europe was, and we pumped just, just dozens of stories about Cuban atrocities, Cuban rapists. We didn't know of one single atrocity committed by the Cubans. It was pure, raw, false propaganda to to create a, an illusion. Okay, so that was John Stockwell, former station chief in Luanda, Angola, managing the Angola War, which is basically a U.S. war, the Pentagon and the CIA, with the support, very active support, principal support of the South African fascist apartheid military against the Angolan liberation movement following the Portuguese Revolution. Anyway, let's go on to another story I don't know if both of you saw this. You know, Mark Esper has this new book out. Everybody who leaves the U.S. government, everybody who is a cabinet official, they leave and then they write a book. And then they go on speaking tours. They make lots of money. So Mark Esper was Secretary of Defense after the killing of George Floyd during the nationwide uprising against racism. He was meeting with Trump and they had that you know, famous conference call June 1st, 2020. With all the governors. All the governors. And they were telling the governors, look, you either use your police and your National Guard with sufficient, you know, violence against these protesters or we're going to use the federal government to send the U.S. Army to uh, U.S. cities. They said you have to dominate the battlefield. That was Mark Esper himself. Yeah. He's written a book now because he had a falling out with Trump after the election. But he said, we have to, what is it, dominate? You have to dominate the battle space. I mean, that's talking about protesters. That's talking about peaceful protests, like at parks where protests are held. The battle spaces in 2020 were the cities of the United States, big and small. So anyway, Mark Esper has this new book out. And Walter, one of the things that he's highlighting, of course, he's trying to sell books, but he makes the point that Donald Trump actually wanted to shoot the demonstrators and ask Mark Esper, why can't we shoot the demonstrators? Just shoot them on the legs, though. It's nothing. First, he said, just shoot them. And then I think Esper protests. And then Trump says, yeah, can't we shoot them in the legs? Can't you just shoot them? Just shoot them in the legs or something, is Esper quoting Trump. Yeah, there's the president of the United States. The First Amendment. Yeah, you have protesters. Let's shoot them. Actually, Nicole, you were there on June 1st. 
when Trump strolled across Lafayette Park for that photo op, you were part of the crowd of people who were violently attacked. You know, people were shot. They were hit with all kinds of so-called non-lethals, which sometimes can be very lethal and very damaging to people's bodies. You know, the people like yourself and others were violently assaulted so that Trump could cross the Lafayette Park. Mark Esper was with him crossing the park in order to have his photo taken in front of St. John's Church on the other side of Lafayette Park, just a couple hundred yards from the White House. That church had been vandalized by somebody earlier, so Trump wanted to have the photo op. Anyway, that completely backfired on the Trump administration. The next day, June 2nd, the day after that, June 3rd, the uprising against racism really became truly massive, and eventually 35 million people came out into the streets and the political climate shifted, at least for a while. But Trump, you know, he wanted to shoot them in the legs, shoot them in the legs. By the way, Walter, I think Joe Biden was talking about retraining the police in America so that they would start shooting people in the legs, too, instead of directly into the head or heart. Yeah, that was that was Biden's solution to police brutality. Well, the cops, they could just start shooting people in the legs and, and then, you know, you'll survive that. I mean, it's unbelievable. Not exactly what Trump is allegedly saying here, but I mean, it shows the mentality of the entire elite that the that the lives of ordinary people, especially working class black people, are, are completely disposable. I mean, it also shows what do they call that? The the Overton frame. It's like, you know, the spectrum of mainstream political parties is either the Republicans shoot people and kill them or, you know, the Democrats. Yeah, just shoot them in the leg. That's fine. I mean, that's essentially like the options. Like that's the mainstream debate. Like that's the spectrum of politics in this country. Well, that shows that American democracy has variety. (laughs) Let's go on to another story. I alluded to it earlier, Nicole, but Here's the headline, New York Times, hospitals scrambling since uninsured are no longer covered for COVID. Okay, so there's new variants and subvariants breaking out. People are still getting sick. The uninsured, you know, they go to the hospital like just like the insured do when they get sick enough. But the government says there's not enough money to maintain this kind of emergency aid for COVID. But of course, there is $33 billion for Ukraine. Anyway, let's talk real quickly about that story. Right. I mean, obviously, this is a huge problem. I mean, even though it feels like the pandemic is waning and a lot of us want it to be over, we are still in a pandemic. There are still people getting sick. There are still people getting hospitalized and there are still people dying. So, you know, ending a federal program that pays for care for people who are uninsured in a country where we have people who are uninsured, where we don't have a public health care program is a terrible idea. But also, you know, public hospitals are generally underfunded anyway. So when you pull funding from COVID care for people who are uninsured, you know, you're pulling funding more broadly for these hospitals, but also this funding was helping to stabilize funding for hospitals, again, more broadly as nurses are leaving, other staff is leaving, all these extra caseloads are coming in, all this extra care is happening in the same facility with the same amount of space. And then, you know, the additional layers that before the pandemic, people were already using the ER for all kinds of care, for their doctor's office, essentially. They don't have time off. They don't have insurance. They don't have a, a primary care physician they can go to. So, you know, now that the pandemic is in fact waning in some ways because the vaccine has helped a lot of people avoid hospitalization, a lot of people are going back to hospitals for 
even people who are insured for that delayed care, they, you know, those surgeries that they maybe could put off, as well as people who are uninsured might be going back to the ER for those things that they, you know, that weren't crises, but that they, you know, didn't have any other access to deal with. And so these hospitals are really struggling. So, you know, just to lay it all out again, it's, you know, we're still in a pandemic. These hospitals are not getting any funding whatsoever for delivering COVID care to people who are uninsured. We've got an influx of insured people who delayed care who are coming in. And we've got the expenses of people who are coming in with no other option for non-COVID care who are uninsured. So, you know, it's just this really massive compounding set of problems for hospitals, which we obviously need to be active. And it's just emanating from this ridiculous idea to not pay for care in the middle of a pandemic for people who are uninsured when we are the wealthiest country on the planet. And, you know, we should have insurance for people, not to mention again, as you phrase this question, $33 billion going to Ukraine for weapons when there are hospitals who are becoming completely destabilized and people who are not getting funding for covering the care that they need in the middle of a pandemic. And I just want to emphasize for people that COVID is still really here. It's not going away. The hospitalizations are down. That's great. But, you know, I was talking to my brother yesterday, one of my brothers, his wife has COVID. Their son has COVID. His wife has COVID. Their two kids have COVID. So the grandmother, the parents, the grandkids all have COVID. The grandkids who probably were the ones who contracted COVID because they were in like pre-K, you know, they're not sick, but the parents are sick. The grandparent is feeling very sick. You know, if you're sick with COVID or if you're just not sick, but you have COVID, you can't go to work. If you're in like these essential jobs, many of which don't have benefits, don't give you time off, no sick leave. That means that you're either going to go to work with COVID and make your coworkers sick, like just kind of not tell people, pretend you have a cold because you can't afford to lose your job, or you're not going to go to work and you are going to lose your job. And this is the reality for tens of millions of workers in the United States. And again, like for people who are not either suffering economically or not suffering with disease or illness at a particular moment... It's kind of easy to think about COVID in sort of this big picture, aggregate way, you know, sort of be an observer or a critic of this or that. But, you know, millions and millions of U.S. families are being very profoundly affected right now. And again, $33 billion for the weapons makers for so-called freedom in Ukraine, while U.S. hospitals are no longer getting the supplemental support they need to cover COVID-related patients who are not insured. I just want to emphasize the CDC has had this list of underlying conditions that can make COVID worse. And a lot of people have these conditions, kidney and liver disease, asthma. I mean, how many, maybe what, tens of millions of people have asthma in this country? Dementia, Alzheimer's, diabetes, both types. I mean, that's also tens of millions of people. Heart conditions, HIV, all of these people are much more vulnerable to COVID and any other disease. And these policies from the government are putting people, especially, you know, people with these higher vulnerabilities at much, much higher risk, not just of getting COVID, but of having a much more severe case and, you know, getting hospitalized or even dying. 
And I just want to say that the criminality of U.S. capitalism in particular that treats healthcare as a commodity in all ways. I'm looking at the headlines. Pfizer stock slides as data from COVID antiviral trial disappoints ahead of first quarter earnings. Like that's the headline about this antiviral Paxlovid treatment, which, you know, has had a lot of promise and people have said it helped them get better. The trials have disappointing data. So what's the big news? Pfizer stocks have slid as a consequence because it's all about commodifying everything in the in the United States, including our health. Our health is a commodity or treatment of our health. And again, we're socialists, but there are even other capitalist countries that don't absolutely treat healthcare and the delivery of healthcare services as a commodity from which one corporate entity or another can get maximum profits. Anyway, that's the distinctive exceptional character of U.S. capitalism. Because you could even argue, Brian, that under a capitalist system, that it would make more sense to have everyone have health care. For one, I mean, people are fighting for health care. So acceding to that demand might even, you know, mollify people and like ameliorate protest for it and people unionizing for it. And also think about what's actually would be good for capitalist corporations. For people to be healthy and produce more work. And also, let's say you had a national health plan and it's not associated with your employment. I mean, wouldn't it be better for even capitalist businesses not to have the, the costs of healthcare associated with their company? But what's blocking all of this is that the lock on the political process by reactionaries at all times, and this is the so-called checks and balances system in the United States, anything that's progressive is checked, you know, and to get the smallest step forward on anything, a social right, a political right, an economic right, it takes a near revolution and the mobilization of millions or tens of millions of people because except for military spending and doing everything to maximize corporate profit, everything else gets checked at one point or another by one power grouping or another, one institution or another within the capitalist establishment. Yeah, I mean, they were even going to take away the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, a few years ago. I mean, the ACA is a Republican health plan, right? It was developed by Mitt Romney, Republican governor of Massachusetts. And it essentially makes it mandatory for you to purchase a product from the insurance corporations. But even because that law had some progressive elements to it, the right wing of the establishment, the right wing of the ruling class was on the verge of repealing even that, just, I mean, really on the eve of the pandemic. So, yeah, I mean, it's an unbelievable system in which any gain, any gain, no matter how mild, is always under threat. Talking about gains that are under threat, half the women in this country are losing their ability to have an abortion. State after state, Texas, Mississippi, Kentucky, Oklahoma, in essence, abortions are becoming illegal in those states. And now the, the new law in Oklahoma would make it illegal for people to go out of state to get abortion services. And again, this kind of right-wing assault against women's rights is everywhere. There are going to be protests coming up, including protests by Planned Parenthood. But the thing that's missing right now is that the main demand and the main target of the demand should not be 
Republican state legislatures and governors who are dedicated to ending or eviscerating women's rights, it should be and must be towards the Democrats because the Democrats have the ability to pass a law in Congress or at least a fight for one where they have the majority in the Senate, the majority in the House, they have the White House, to pass a bill making abortion rights nationwide and irreversible. Now, of course, the Republicans and the reactionaries will try to do everything to stop it, but that should be the fight. If you're not demanding that the Democrats act when they control both houses of Congress and the White House, your demands and your protests are basically meaningless. Like, what difference does it matter? The Republicans are not going to listen. But if the Democrats who have the authority don't act, then Roe v. Wade is essentially extinguished as of now for women in half the states of the country. Yeah. Looking where at right now, Georgia, Iowa, South Dakota, West Virginia all have abortion banned on or around 20 weeks, which is really only midway through the second trimester. And then Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Wisconsin, same deal, all around 20 weeks. But you also have to have that nasty waiting period where you have to have at least two clinic visits by some of those states. So, you know, if you're low income, if you have two jobs, you know, if you don't have insurance, you're not only paying for both of those appointments, you have to actually make both of those appointments in your schedule. And you have to get transit to, to both of those appointments. Maybe you don't have a car. Maybe the bus doesn't come very often. Depending on where you live, that's pretty common. You know, maybe there isn't a clinic that's even in your town. You have to get transit to, you know, across the state twice in two days. I mean, it's just really, really disgusting. You have to go to counseling. Quote, unquote, counseling. Counseling, which is basically telling you that abortion is terrible. But Nicole, these other states are making it six weeks. Yeah, there's other states that are making it on or around six weeks. I mean, think about six weeks. Like, unless your period comes precisely, exactly the exact same time every single month, and you are very aware of that, and you, you know, along with everything else going on in your life, you are, you know, precisely attuned to exactly when your period comes. So many people would not notice that that is happening, would not realize that they are pregnant at six weeks. So, Texas and Oklahoma or again, banning abortion at six weeks. And of course, they're calling it this so-called heartbeat bill, but there is no heart at six weeks. There's no organ. There's no heart organ. It's just a clump of cells. It's, you know, this is obviously just designed to pull at your heartstrings. And really, it's a deeply regressive and anti-woman bill. Oklahoma law now makes performing an abortion a felony, which is punishable by up to 10 years in prison, there's also a bill, again, the six weeks bill is awaiting the governor's signature. Another that bans essentially all abortions is in the legislature in Oklahoma. And then two bills in the legislature are essentially modeling themselves after Texas's bill that allow private citizens to sue doctors or anyone who helps a woman get an abortion for up to $10,000. In Texas, you were able to report someone getting an abortion or report someone providing an abortion and the state would sue in Oklahoma, this empowers private parties, not the state, to actually enforce this ban. So you could just decide, hey, I want $10,000 and I, I'm going to go ahead and, and prosecute this, you know, whereas in Texas, it goes through the state. So, I mean, this is just really, really disgusting. And Brian, I want to bring it back to how you introduced this because, you know, Planned Parenthood, this group that has, you know, in many states, these are some of the last clinics where you can actually get abortion care. 
you know, Planned Parenthood runs so many clinics around the country and does incredible work, all kinds of reproductive health, well women exams, all sorts of healthcare they provide for women. They also have an action fund, their sort of political arm. And their action fund, along with a couple of other sort of related Democratic Party associated funds and nonprofits, it's been reported are planning on spending $150 million in the midterm elections this year. It's already being reported on that. But the problem is they're spending it on electing Democrats. And not that Republicans are any better, but they're spending it on elections. They're spending it on people who are not actually supporting women. You know, there are a majority of Democrats in Congress right now. I mean, instead of lobbying, you know, or protesting in front of the Supreme Court building, they're not attacking. They're not protesting. They're not dealing with the real root of the issue. Like Democrats and Republicans are working together to not pass any of this. Congress could act at this exact moment right now and they could pass just widespread abortion access, full abortion care. And this isn't the first time that's been the case. Anytime the Democratic Party has had the majority in Congress, you know, theoretically, they should be able to do this. But that's not what has happened. And time and time again, the Democratic Party has supported candidates who don't support abortion. They don't support abortion care. And, you know, the fact that some of these other actors that you know, say they're in support of women are not actually calling people out on this. And they're and they continue to support the same party that isn't getting women what they need is just completely outrageous. And as most people will know, we're waiting now for the Supreme Court to make decisions on other cases that could have the impact of either overturning or seriously gutting Roe v. Wade. The Guttmacher Institute it's a good website to get up-to-date information on the state of these struggles at the state level and on the nationwide level. It says in this headline, if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns or guts Roe v. Wade, 26 states are certain or likely to ban abortion. That's the majority of states in the country. So that would be 26. And it's not just, you know, Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi and Florida and Georgia. It's Michigan. It's Ohio. It's Indiana, Iowa, states all across the country, as far west as Idaho. So the stakes could not be higher right now. And again, just we've said this a million times, but the majority sentiment supports abortion rights. I mean, even if majority sentiment didn't, you would still be fighting for abortion rights, a basic right of women to control their own bodies. But the fact that it's majority sentiment it supports this. And yet, step by step, all of these states are, are taking away the rights of women without a massive fight back. It really says so much about what we do need. And what we do need is a militant mass movement of people in the streets led by women, led especially as historically happened in the run up to Roe v. Wade by younger women, women of all nationalities, a multinational, multiracial fight back to defend women's rights. This is what has to happen. The political climate won't shift by getting more Democrats elected. That hasn't happened. I mean, the political climate has gotten worse, even though the Democrats have control of the House and the Senate and the White House. The thing is, we have to learn the lesson of history. The only way the political climate shifts is by mass movements in the streets. And this can happen. It can take off. It can ignite. It can spread like wildfire. Let's turn to another story. 
Walter, workers standing up, fighting back, trying to rebuild and revitalize the labor movement. And again, we saw it at Amazon in Staten Island. We have other Amazon drives. But in particular, Starbucks is sort of a an epicenter for this struggle between the bosses and workers and the right to unionize. Howard Schultz, back as CEO of Starbucks, coming back with one intent, which is to crush unionization at Starbucks. Yeah, Brian, I mean, I think this is such an important example for the entire working class. Workers in Starbucks are building momentum. There's uh, successful elections after elections after elections at different Starbucks locations across the country. And workers are, are voting for the union by really massive margins. I mean, there are many stores that voted unanimously. Now, granted, you know, there's not a ton of workers working in the Starbucks, but still for every single worker in a lot of these sites to say, yes, we want to form a union. I mean, that really says something about the state of class consciousness at that company, right? At Starbucks, this massive global corporation that's known all around the world. And I think generally in society. And so Starbucks being one of the biggest corporations in the world, has devoted unbelievable resources, huge sums of money to union busting. And sort of the, the crowning piece of their strategy is Howard Schultz's return. Howard Schultz was the founder, founding CEO, kind of figure most associated with the company and the, the takeoff of Starbucks as a global phenomenon. He has come back to the company to serve as its interim CEO with one mission. I mean, with one mission, and that's to bust the union to reverse the momentum, to turn back the tide, and to crush the workers. He's doing it in a way that's, you know, obviously very stage-managed and prepared by a whole team of public relations people. But it's really disgusting, and I think it says so much about inequality, because you have Starbucks workers who make poverty wages in so many cases, who can't afford the basics that you need to live a dignified life. And here's Howard Schultz, who's, whose personal fortune is worth about $4 billion. He owns, by the way, he owns a 250-foot super yacht, which he paid $120 million for. And he's... Are you calling Howard Schultz an oligarch? <laughs> I think Howard Schultz is an oligarch. I think he's one of the most powerful oligarchs out there. So he took some time off from his 250-foot super yacht, and he's now touring the country to tell workers, don't form a union. All right. We're going to stay on top of the labor organizing that's going on around the whole country. Obviously, workers want unions. It's only been the union busting campaigns and intimidation bankrolled by the billions of dollars possessed by corporations and by billionaires. All profit and all wealth derived from the labor of workers that's being used to deprive workers of the right to get together, to organize, to speak with a voice. When you have a union... It doesn't solve all of your problems. You have to fight to make a union fight. But without a union, you have no rights. And so the need for workers to form unions, to be together, to have collective bargaining where possible, but even to be together as unions when collective bargaining isn't possible, that's on the order of the day, as it always should be, but really is especially right now. Okay, we have two more stories. Of course, the last one being the big highlights from Liberation News. Nicole, one of the big issues that helped spur the Bernie Sanders campaign to becoming a mass movement was the promise by Sanders that if elected, he would cancel student debt. And then in 2020, the campaign demanding that community college be free. In other words, that education start to be 
affordable for working class people. And, you know, we have Pete Buttigieg demagogically fighting against student debt relief, making the argument, which some of the Republicans are also making, that this is just giving taxpayers money away to the already rich who don't really need debt relief. Anyway, the Biden administration has been really being pilloried by people on the liberal wing of the Democratic Party and those outside who actually believe that there would be student debt relief for, you know, what is the student debt? It's like $1.6 trillion now for people coming out of college. It's like crazy and you can never escape this debt. There's laws Congress has passed so that unlike any other debt that you can declare bankruptcy on at some point and get relief and a second chance, can never do that with a student debt. So, Nicole, the White House leaked that it's considering, emphasis considering, finally following through on Biden's promise to cancel some student debt, but not the $50,000 pushed by congressional Democrats and only for those below an income threshold, the so-called means test. Now, we're getting this story from David Sirota, the newsletter, The Lever. It was formerly The Daily Poster. Again, student debt seemed like a dead letter. It's back. But it also seems, based on the way the White House is handling it, that the Democrats are going to try to really limit the amount that's given or the amount that's received in terms of student debt relief. Right. And it's based on that line you just talked about, you know, oh, we don't want to give money to the kids of millionaires and billionaires. But when you actually look at the data, which this article does, for example, under one of the plans in Congress to cancel $50,000 of federal student debt for everyone, the data shows that, you know, the average person who's sort of lower middle class, lower middle income status in terms of household wealth would get more than four times as much debt cancellation as the average person in the top 10% of wealth. So essentially people like lower to middle income people would get more than four times as much debt canceled as the top 10%, as the wealthiest in the country. So, I mean, that right there shows that this line about, oh, it's only, you know, we don't want to give all this money away to the wealthy. Like that's not actually represented in the data. And what's really going to happen is, you know, lower to middle income people are going to be the people getting the bulk of the debt that's canceled. So the point of the article is that having a means testing is really simply a way to make more and more people either ineligible, working class people, to make them either ineligible or more and more people who are eligible won't really access the programs because the simple procedure of having a means test eliminates a huge part of the population. And I'll give you an example that we've talked a lot about on this show. One of the new criteria for Medicaid expansion for people who are above the poverty line, but not very far above the poverty line, say in a state like Kentucky, was that you had to prove that you were working and that you were working a certain number of hours. So employment was then part of the means test for whether you are eligible for Medicaid expansion. Now, many, many, many people who are working and thus are eligible for Medicaid expansion won't fill the paperwork out properly, won't know that they have to fill the paperwork out in a certain way, will miss deadlines with the paperwork, especially for low-income people for whom everything becomes more complicated. This is a way of eliminating people. And I want to read from the article. Means testing is a way to take simple universal programs and make them complicated. 
and inaccessible. In practice, calculating exact income levels and then proving them for eligibility means reams of red tape for both the potential beneficiary and the government bureaucracy that must be created to process that paperwork. Data from the food stamp and Medicaid programs illustrate how means testing creates brutal time and administrative barriers to benefits. That's what it's really all about. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever been on or applied for food stamps, you know exactly what this is. You have to have all this documentation, endless amounts of documentation that if you've lost it, you know, heaven forbid, you're out of luck. You have to get all this paperwork, forms A, B, C, D. You know, you have to make sure you're finding the right paperwork. And where do you find it? Maybe you're, you know, you have to look through this bureaucratic website. You're looking through tab after tab, page after page. And if you're like most people in the country, you're on your phone doing this, this tiny device as you're scrolling through it, you know, on your way to your second job while you're on the bus. Maybe, you know, you missed the deadline. You know, maybe it was last week. Maybe you lose the paperwork on the way to your second job. I mean, there's just so many barriers. And, you know, this is exactly the red tape that conservatives love to yell about because it's a massive pain. You're exactly right. And I know for all of us, but for some of us even more, I'll take myself, for example, I switched phone carriers for my cell phone. It said, you get, you'll get a $500 rebate. You have to go back and fill out the forms afterwards. Six weeks later, you have to show your final form. I did all that. And then it says, and what was that coupon code that you use this particular promotional plan to get your rebate? And I was like, wait, where is that code? Like you can't find it. Then you spend, you know, an hour going through old emails from Verizon or some other carrier. You can't find that. And eventually you're like, damn, I just can't do it. Now, I know that some of us are more vulnerable to that happening than others. But I would say for tens of millions of people, stuff like this impedes your access to basic rights. And all this stuff piles up too. What you just described is exacerbated by living in this country as a working class person. If you're evicted month to month, if you're moving around, hopping around on couches, you know, keeping track of that one coupon code on that one receipt is impossible. I mean, if you're moving all the time, if you're working all kinds of hours, your patience wears so much thinner, so much more quickly, you know, how are you going to make sure that you log onto that website at this exact time and enter this exact piece of data? If you didn't pay your internet carrier for a month and you actually lost connection for a month. Same with electricity. If you lose your job in the pandemic and all of a sudden the moratorium on turning off the lights is now for some reason gone, you've got this massive debt to pay back just to have a right to have energy in your home. This stuff really adds up. I mean, and imagine if you're managing all of this for your kid because, you know, this is student loans. They're 20. I lost everything when I was 20. We, you know, kids lose all kinds of this stuff. I mean, and this is the same thing for taxes every year. I mean, we all go through this. You have to look for your AGI code or whatever. The point is there's no need for this. And Congress and state legislatures, they know this. In fact, you know, they calculate. Congress and state legislatures have people to calculate how much each bill will cost. And often you'll see in Congress and state legislatures, if they're dealing with a bill that's too expensive, they'll add on this quote unquote means testing, meaning you have to jump through however many hoops to prove your X, Y, Z. And they'll calculate, oh, that means you'll quote unquote save this much money because this many people won't be able to do the thing that you're requiring them to do, which is usually some kind of paperwork. Theoretically, is that it's not actually to help people. Because if you wanted to help people, you would just cancel student debt. Just cancel it. Because people from wealthy backgrounds don't even take on student debt. 
And nobody thinks that they really do. So that's just a false propaganda piece that Pete Buttigieg and other... That a lot of people believe because most of us can't imagine not having to take out loans for college. It's so expensive. Yeah, it's very diabolical. And one of the things that we've mentioned in this show is that in states around the country where Medicaid expansion, 90% of the costs were paid for by the federal government. The state had to pick up 10%. Those states are now hiring private contractors and paying them tens of millions of dollars, literally tens of millions of dollars, because those private corporations then go through the Medicaid role and they flag people, they say, might who might be no longer eligible for Medicaid expansion because they hadn't previously filled out a form properly or their income is unknown. So then the state can send a letter to that person on Medic- who's had Medicaid expansion, meaning finally able to go to a doctor and can say, oh, we have challenged your eligibility. And even if you're completely eligible and you haven't missed any deadlines and you filled out all the forms, you have to fill out more forms and you have to send them in by such and such a date. And if you either don't get the letter or don't fulfill the deadline requirements, then you lose your Medicaid benefits, even though you are 100% eligible. So the states know that by harassing poor people with these private you know, companies, that that's all they do. They're like vultures. They know that they're going to reduce costs. And so all of this is just a big scam. It's a con job, as David Sirota put it in this newsletter. Because instead of having states hire companies to harass people and force them off Medicaid, you know, healthcare, I don't know, why don't you hire those people to go fix the roads? Why don't you hire those people to be the extra nurses in the hospitals who are so deeply necessary? Instead of that, why don't you hire those people to go grow more produce to feed hungry people or lay more train tracks so we can cleanly transport food and goods more easily? Here's one other part of this too. I mean, by means testing a social program, it really fundamentally changes the underlying politics of that program in a way that's much more acceptable to the elite. I mean, when we're saying cancel all student loan debt, we're saying that education, including college education, is a basic right that all people are entitled to. And the fact that people, so many people, were forced to take on a huge, crushing financial burden is actually a violation of your rights as a human being. And so therefore, any debt incurred as a consequence of this violation of your rights should, of course, be considered null and void, right? Like, that's the argument that we're making. But by means testing some limited form of student debt relief, it remains a commodity. Education remains a commodity in that formulation. And what essentially the people who are pushing this type of you know, means-tested student debt relief program are saying is that education is a commodity, and we understand that some people are just too poor to afford that commodity. So out of a sense of charitableness, out of a magnanimous sense of charity, they're going to help some of those people pay for this commodity, but it remains something to be bought and sold and not a right. All right, Walter, we are going to go now to Liberation News. Before we do that, I want to just remind people once again that on Wednesday, we're going to be joined by Greg Mello from the Los Alamos Study Group. We're going to talk in depth about nuclear weapons and the nuclear, the development of the nuclear weapons industry and the danger, the growing danger of nuclear war. But let's go now to you, Liberation News Highlights. 
Well, I wanted to start off by talking about May Day. May Day, of course, was on Sunday. There's an editorial from Liberation News titled May Day from Workers' Resistance to Workers' Revolution that I wanted to highlight. It talks about some of the bright spots in the labor movement, Starbucks being one of them, the Amazon workers being another, and how that workers' resistance, that growing labor militancy can be transformed, can be translated into a movement for a whole new type of society. Another article that I want to highly, highly recommend is titled, Should We Really Blame NATO for the Ukraine War? This was written by Eugene Perrier, a frequent guest on this show, especially about the Ukraine war. It goes through, and in detail, it explains that it is an indisputable historical fact that NATO knew that they were setting the stage for war with its constant expansion from the close of the Cold War up until the present day. Last article I want to highlight is titled, We Make Poverty Wages and We Wanted More, Chicago Grad Students Strike Win Major Gains. This is about a strike waged at the University of Illinois at Chicago by the Graduate Employees Organization, how through unity and a willingness to fight, a willingness to struggle and to take risks, they were able to secure very important gains and set an example for other workers across the country. And you can check out all of these articles and much more at liberationnews.org. Sign up for a newsletter at the top. All right, we're going to leave it right there. We'll be back tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolf, Marxist economist, in our weekly series about the big stories in the economy and the big stories related to the working class. On Wednesday, Greg Mello, Los Alamos Study Group, is our featured guest that will be broadcast Wednesday night on Breakthrough News YouTube, and it'll appear, as always, as a podcast on all streaming services on Thursday morning. Again, a big shout out to all of the people who helped this show continue, and that is, of course, our patrons. This show is a labor of love, but we can't do it without financial resources, without some support. We're independent, no corporate backing. We need you. We need the audience that likes this show and relies on this show to do your part to become a patron today. We'll see you tomorrow and talk again with Richard Wolf and on Wednesday with Greg Mello. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 